This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello and welcome to the latest minicast from Leader ReadyCast, bringing you news you can use, the latest leadership insights from the coronavirus response, trying to keep you up to date and on top of all the latest in terms of how to deal with this perplexing, complex event. Our guest today is Regina Phelps. She's an internationally recognized expert in the field of crisis management, continuity planning, and exercise design. She's the founder of EMS Solutions, Inc. And since 1982, her firm has been providing consultation and speaking services to clients in four continents. She's the author of four books, among them, Crisis Management, How to Develop a Powerful Program. Regina, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thank you, Eric. It's a delight to be with you. Good. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you so much because I, you know, your posts on LinkedIn are my first stop every morning. Before I get to the mainstream <laughs> media, I know that you've been up, you've looked at what's going on, you can contextualize the situation, and I get more situational awareness first thing in the morning from, from your posts. So thank you very much for doing that. You're welcome. And so one of my joys in the morning is finding out exactly what's going on with COVID-19 around the world. There we go. Just how deep in it are we? That's the, that's the challenge. That's exactly right. And so as you've been observing this crisis and the response to it, I want to get your take on what, the, what do you think it takes to lead effectively right now? What do you see that the people, that leaders are doing well? You know, that's a really great question. And I, I think about that every day because I work with leader teams all over the world. And, I, and I'll tell you, there's basically uh, three things that I look at. Uh, and the first one is that I'm, I'm looking at people that can lead with empathy and compassion. And I, and I really believe that leaders need to have tremendous empathy, uh, not only for themselves, but for their, their workers, their vendors, their communities, and their families. And they really need to communicate in a way that clearly demonstrates that they can identify with all of us and that they understand people's emotions. And, and, and when I look around, for example, at government, I see some really great examples of leadership and times of a crisis, especially COVID-19. And I actually looked at some of the governments around the world that are being led by women, uh, both in Germany and New Zealand and Belgium and Finland and Denmark and Iceland, who have had really great responses to the COVID-19 threat, but they've also done it with incredible empathy and been able to connect so well with their constituents. And so all of those countries also, by the way, have done a great job of flattening the curve. But I also then look actually to my, um, here in the city of San Francisco, uh, our mayor, London Breed, she declared a state of emergency here in San Francisco on uh, February 25th. We were the first nation, uh, first city in the nation to do that. And, and then along with six other counties, we've been sheltering in place since March 16th. So they, but they've done that uh, with that compassion and empathy, which I think in a disease that is not visible to the naked eye, we don't know if it's going to affect us personally today or tomorrow or ever. And we don't know about our families. And I think to think about a disease versus any other crisis, Eric, is it's really personal. I mean, earthquakes are awful and tornadoes are awful and active shooters are awful, but this is personal. It's about every single one of us. So a leader that can lead with that kind of empathy and compassion, I think is really important. 
And, and sort of the two other things I think that are part of that that are really critical is, is, a, is, a, is really tied, I think, to the first one, which is really a will, willingness to go there uh, and to really be for, there with people that have a need and people that are hurting. And, you know, there's some people, and I'm sure you know in your population of friends and colleagues, that have that ability to connect with somebody, even if they're grieving or really having a, a difficult time, and yet they can still be present for somebody. You know, that's a, a great skill. And to be able to be with people who are suffering and being able to reach out to them and being able to listen and provide that kind of deep support. Boy, a leader that can do that, oh my gosh, that's digging deep for themselves, but also being able to really support people in a, in a really positive, positive uh, way. And then I think my last one, because you asked for three, is that is to be open and to be really an, an original thinker. I think my clients that are doing the best now, frankly, are those that are really open to whatever is going to be happening next and not being held to the old way it was always done or going back to the, our old normal. Uh, and they really are listening and really being open with a lot of creativity and ingenuity and really looking for different ideas, even if they sound frankly kind of crazy, because I mean, after all, who thought that we would all be working at home? <laughs> uh, <laughs> true. I mean, who, who thought that, right? I mean, my clients used to say, you know, we could put our call centers at home, but that doesn't make sense because, you know, it's a lot of effort and, and they're probably not going to be very productive. But I will tell you, and my clients who've sent their call centers home, they've discovered overwhelmingly two things. Oh my gosh, they are super productive. And you know what? when surveyed for worker satisfaction, major improvement. I mean, that's like the ultimate win. So when I look at people that are being open and being creative, and they're really looking at things differently, they are much more uh, uh, able to respond effectively in this crisis, and they're not held to the old ideas. So to me, I think that's another really wonderful thing I look for in leadership at this time. Wow, there's so much to unpack there in what you said, and I think you've hit on so many good points. I, I could not agree with you more in terms of empathy that um, everyone is in a fear-based state, and there, mm. there is a different, there's a different emotional tone to, to a crisis like this, because as you mentioned, the other ones that you mentioned, be it a hurricane, an earthquake, an active shooter, first of all, boom is over relatively quickly. Exactly. exactly. The suffering may persist <clears throat> for a while, but that sort of the big threat is over quickly. Okay. And in this case, it per, it's persisting for weeks, months. Uh, and we're looking at, we may, we may not be through this for a year or so, mm -hmm. which is a whole different level of, of emotional stress on people. Mm -hmm. um, and that ability to be, to be, to be empathic is, is so critical. Because I think that people want to uh, look to leaders to not just know what to do, but to know who to be mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in this situation. And I think the examples you've given of the, the women leading around the world are a great example and uh, uh, perhaps a subtle hint to the rest of us to start voting for more of them. Um, yeah, you know, I'm all that for that. Be, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. as, as well as, as the openness, because this is un, you know, unprecedented in, in many ways, although that word unprecedented has been, been way overused, but we're not going to be, we're not going back to what we were before. We're going to go, we're going to pull things forward in a, in a new and different way. And that's gonna, it is gonna require thinking differently. And I, and I do, as I've talked to people who are working from home, yes, they seem to be doing more work than ever, which is, you know, setting boundaries can be an issue there, but they're sort of, they sort of engaged and I think like being productive. Mm -hmm. And the assumption that because you are sitting at home, you are gonna be goofing off a lot is not proven true. 
Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as, as we look forward, I mean, one of the things I hear a lot of conversation about right now, and I know you have some interesting things to say, is as we think about pivoting from this response into recovery, whatever recovery looks like, mm-hmm. what should leaders be thinking about? What, what are some of the issues they're going to have to deal with? Mm-hmm. So, so let me first of all start by, um, by talking about the phases of a pandemic. And I'm not going to be utilizing the traditional phases that you hear about with the CDC, which has a traditional force staged approach. So um, we've actually, in my practice, I've been doing crisis management for 38 years, and we've been doing pandemic planning for 22 of those 38. And so we used to have the traditional kind of standard pandemic phases. But what I've observed in working on this pandemic since January 10th, when our first client called us in, um, that is a little bit different. So let me frame the conversation by talking about those phases, and and then that will really lead to where we need to pivot to now. So the way we look at this is that there are basically seven phases in this pandemic, the COVID-19 response. The first phase was really planning. And so that was, of course, everything you should have had in place as of December 31st, 2019. The second thing is awareness. And so depending on your company, uh, your organization, you became aware as early as early January. But in some cases, frankly, many people didn't even wake up till the end of February. And so once you became aware of it, then you started to assess how it could impact you. The third phase is really activation and response. So that's activating your crisis management team, activating your pandemic plan, getting everybody up online and uh, moving forward, if you will, and then, and then mustering a response. Uh, the fourth phase and how we look at a pandemic is a little bit different than than you see in others. And this is what we call the reevaluation phase. Now, granted, I know after doing crisis management for a zillion years, is that you're constantly reevaluating. But I'll tell you, Eric, I have never seen people reevaluate like they have in this. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know, the, the idea is that people used to think, oh, oh, I'll give you an example. Let's say there was 100 business processes you thought you had to be doing every day. I will tell you, in my client population, they have reevaluated those things. And in some cases, they've cut it in half. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Because yeah. What, you know, what was important then is not nearly as important now. And with changes and, and resources and, and capabilities, you're constantly peeling, 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 and asking yourself, you know, do we really be, need to be doing this now? How can we do this differently? Blah, blah, blah. But also, that's on the tactical side. On the, um, on the strategic side, there's a whole other space with that, which is executives that are asking the questions such as, you know, is this a good time to do a merger? Should we look at, be, should we look at acquisitions? Should we really buy that building we were going to buy next year? What about, you know, leasing more space? What about getting rid of space? So they're thinking that whole reevaluation way themselves, right? So, but different, of course, strategically. So that's the fourth phase for us. The fifth phase is, I think, where we are right now. And we call it, you'll laugh when I tell you the name of this, we call it the cocooning phase, but also, <laughs> the, but also the reentry phase. And the reason I call it cocooning is that our clients have, have pared down the animal, if you will, as far as they can, and they've kind of packed it up and we're all kind of in a medically induced coma is what I like to call it. And that's really kind of true, right? You've got it down to a manageable size. You've got everybody finally working from home if that was what your strategy was. You've worked through a lot of the issues and now we're just kind of waiting, right? We're waiting, waiting, waiting. But then also there's the reentry planning because not only are you keeping the animal alive in our medically induced coma, but frankly, you're also thinking about how we're gonna start again. And that's what I'm doing right now with all my clients is we're doing coaching on reentry. 
And there's two levels to that. There's a strategic issue. So the, the senior executives that are peeling all of those things back about, you know, are we really going to continue this part of our business? What's our economic forecast look like? Blah, blah, blah. And then the tactical folks figuring out, well, how do we do this, right? I've spent hours and hours over the last two weeks doing nothing but that kind of talking with people. The sixth uh, part of the uh, COVID response plans is really under reentry, which is again, starting, whatever starting means. And then the last phase, which is phase seven, which is reinvention. And I will tell you, I am seeing, I thought this would be much later in the process, but I'm seeing people thinking of reinvention right now, which might be things such as, you know, is everybody going to go back ever? Right. I just talked to a couple of physicians saying that, you know, after the telemedicine has been going for a few more months, they could see that half their practice is going to go to telemedicine. You're right. That's a, that's a great example. I, I love your seven faces here. And I, I have to agree with you in the conversations I have been having. Again, seeing that the acceleration of that reinvention and there is, you know, there's some obvious ones like telemedicine is one that was ready to be here two years ago. It was just, it's been right. waiting for a regular, it's been regulatory hurdles and who's going to pay for it. Right. And then this all of a sudden pushes it over the edge. But I've talked to other organizations that, that really have seen, you know, ways that, again, they were, they're quickly looking and saying, what are we going to need and what are our customers going to need? They'll be different, you know, two months, six months from now that they didn't need before. And they're pushing really hard and saying, let's just go for it. Let's, right. this is right. the, this is the opportunity to, to really move parts of the business and, and, and restructure things in ways that make a lot more sense going forward than they did in the past. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's, I mean, that is the silver lining in all of this is that it's a really an opportunity to really rethink how we do everything. And I'll give you an example about, about how this, we really push this out with folks. And that is that when we really start talking about the reentry planning, um, so we start a little bit, of, I'll, I'll give you an example about how that conversation might go. And that is that, first of all, the trigger is when do you go back, right? So there's two ways of looking at that. The first trigger is when you actually hear from the government saying, okay, you can go back. Okay, well, that's nice. But what, is that, what does that really mean, right? And so what I say to them is, is that what is your internal trigger? And the next thing I will always say to them, how is it working right now? Now, for many businesses that have a lot of field response or things like that, of course, it's a very different answer. But for more of an office-based business, if I say to them, how's it working now? And they said, oh, you know, it was really tough at the beginning, but we got everybody home. Our call centers are home, blah, blah, blah. And it's working pretty well. And then I'll say to them, okay, why are you going back now? Answer me that question. Why are you going back now? And then they start to really hem and haw. Like, well, because we're supposed to, well, who says you're supposed to, <laughs> right? You know, it's the idea that I, I think, right. and, I, and I think executives, frankly, don't know what else to do except to tell their staff, well, figure out how to go back. But if there's, it is a deep question. It is a deep question how to go back. Why are you going back? Because if you tell me, if you have said to me, Eric, okay, I'm working, everybody's working remotely. It's all doing great. We've, you know, we're, we're meeting our deliverables. We figured through a lot of these issues, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll say, okay, then build me the case, build me the case about why I'm going to send my folks back. I'm going to put them on public transport. I'm going to have them physically distance in the office, at least six feet apart. They're probably going to be wearing facial coverings in their office areas. And that will be our life. And I'll probably have temperature checking as they come in. And that's going to be our life for 18 months. 
Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, it is, and I think it's, this is, reminds me in a way, and again, I, I hate some of these comparisons, but some of them are valid, that, um, you know, after 9-11, the mm -hmm. immediate ramp up in building security that has never gone back. Right. Uh, and right. as someone who used to live in New York City, I mean, there are buildings I went into for years and now all of a sudden you had to sign into, show a picture ID. And to the expense level incumbent that, that came with that of, of guards and, and technology and gates right. and all that stuff was an imposed cost that, uh, you know, it may in some ways have been an overreaction. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, and we may see the same thing here if we try and push back to say, okay, we're all going back to the same office offices we were in two months ago. That of how you, as you say, having to take temperature, having to be more spaced out, and it is a good time to re to rethink why we do what we do, where we do it, while still having to deal with the psychological piece. Because I know a lot of people, right, right. they do get, they do like being with their workmates, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. part of it's just doing the work and doing the physical, the processes of of getting stuff done. But then there's also the the camaraderie of being part of a team, right? And it may take us a little bit longer to figure that one out. Right, right. Yeah, and certainly there have been creative, you know, things where people establish, you know, virtual water coolers and having lunch with each other over Zoom and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think the other thing, and I think you, you've touched on this, is that, so you make the decision, so you finally figure out all the, you know, the ways you're going to social distance and do all those other things in the job. But then people are still going to be fearful, frankly, to go back. Yeah. I mean, there, and, and I think yesterday, Gavin Newsom, who's the mayor, uh, the excuse me, the governor of, of uh, California, really said this really clearly when he did his initial kind of um, salvo, if you will, into what reentry planning looks like in the state. And he said, it's not going to be normal. There is no more normal. Right. Uh, and that's what you need to understand. Uh, and if that's the vision that an executive has in their mind about going back, they need to immediately you know, just like they, they did with the, uh, you know, when they held up the one and the, and the uh, different movies where they vaporize your memory, they need to get rid of that because there is no, there is no there there anymore. It's going to be completely different. And so if they understand what that means, I think that changes the dynamic of this push to, oh my gosh, we have to go back. Uh, and then there's all kinds of issues about, and this is one of the things that really hangs up on a lot of our clients. So I'll say to them, okay, so if you're going to go back to the office, you know what you have to do every day? You have to have effective disease monitoring. What does that mean? I need to know on a daily basis who has COVID symptoms in my company. And nobody calls in sick to a central place. And of course, because of traditional issues of privacy, you wouldn't be calling out people or, or saying why they were sick. But frankly, right. you need to know. If all of a sudden I send people back and I'm not monitoring if there's an increase in illness and by Friday I've got 10 people with COVID symptoms, I kind of made a big mistake and I wasn't paying any attention. So how do you monitor those illnesses so that people, you're not exposing people inappropriately and you're actually taking care of business and being smart, right? Absolutely. So let me, this, is a good, this is a good way to, to segue to my last question, mm -hmm. which is what are the, the two or three most frequent traps you see leaders stepping into right now? Are there some avoidable traps that you see them uh, falling prey to? Yeah, there's a couple. So uh, actually, I have three, as a matter of fact. Uh, the first one really is resisting that urge to go back to the way it was, in which we were just talking about. But it's really before they hit the reset button and say, okay, let's go back, they need to stop and think about First of all, what have we learned in this period of time of being away? And what am I gaining by going back? Understanding that it's going to be different. And I think many business leaders think it's going to be just like it was when we walked out of that office 
however many weeks ago that was. So I want them to visualize and imagine the physical distancing, the facial coverings, the anxiety, all of those things. There'll be no, no more meetings and rooms, small conference room. None of that's, none of that's happening. So how is that going to be better or different than what we have? So they, first of all, have to, to get rid of that with the way that it used to be, which I think, frankly, Eric, is a kind of like a form of denial in many ways and not really seeing the reality that's in front of us is how I kind of look at that. Um, the second thing is I think they need to really revisit their risk tolerance. So I've been in practice for 38 years, and I will tell you, in the last 10 years, I've seen a dramatic increase in executives' risk tolerance for all kinds of things. And again, because I do crisis management, pandemic planning, my firm does business continuity planning, and we've seen people really pull back from a lot of that because they would say to me, well, Regina, when was the last time you know this happened, like an earthquake or a tornado or an active shooter or whatever? And maybe in some companies, they've even never had an activation. They've never had a big enough crisis to activate their continuity plans or their crisis management plans. And at that case, executives, frankly, they become much more tolerant of the risk because they'll say, well, look, it hasn't happened. Right. So, so therefore, then their companies aren't as prepared. Their plans aren't as current. Their teams aren't trained. And then you get kind of a mess, Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I actually, one of my predictions coming out of this is that preparedness may actually get sex, a little sexy. Yeah, oh, I totally am thinking that. At least <laughs> the I'm thing thinking is that for a while. To, right, everyone's been able to, to ignore it. It's, yeah, we don't want to spend money on that. Now it's going to be kind of cool to be prepared, I think. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that. And I, I, think, I think the third thing I, I would say is that I would really hope that, that never again where people never say never, right? Never say never. So the idea is that I'm already hearing people say to me, you know, Regina, this could never happen again. We could never have another pandemic like this. And I think to myself, you know, what, what rock are you under? <laughs> so, so and, and, and if you just even pay a little attention to this, you know, this pandemic has been forecast forever. We've expected this forever. It's, it's exactly as was foretold forever. And I think the thing that people need to think about is that we've got several things now that are even driving this harder. First of all, is climate change. Why is climate change part of this? Because it's basically changing the environment all over the world. Wild critters who used to have a place that they could hang out with not too many people around them are now because of environmental degradation, population overexpansion, but also just the temperature changes and the changes in their environment are being forced more into places where there are humans. So you get the bats interfacing with the humans. A lot of deforestation is creating that same thing right now. And then lastly, there's still a zillion places in the world where animals are in very close contact with humans, whether that's in a wet market in China or whether it's people that sleep with their chickens in Bhutan because they don't want them to get out and get eaten by a critter. So they have, there are many places in the world where there are really close interfaces between wild and domestic animals and humans. And if that's all you need, for a virus to jump from a, an animal to a human and then to begin to do exactly what it's been doing since the end of December. And so I think this is gonna happen again and it may be a long time, but frankly, Eric, it may not be. And I think that's the thing that people need to really understand is that this could either easily happen again in our lifetime. No, I think you're right because it, this used to be a, also a once in a lifetime maybe experience. You had 1918 then you had 1957. Mm -hmm, now right. we can we can look back and we can see 
Ebola just a few years ago, H1N1 right. a few years before that. MERS has been around, right. unfortunately not, not gone as, yeah. as wide as it, it, it possibly could have. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a more frequent occurrence, and we are right. going to have to rethink. Uh, I, I, I'm a big advocate of, the, of environmental issues, so I'm a big advocate around re sort of rethinking our relationship with, with the wild mm -hmm. and realizing mm -hmm. we just can't sort of do whatever we want without consequences because right. that's you know, the, 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 this virus made an, had an enormous evolutionary victory when it jumped into the largest large animal host on the planet. That's right. You, you <laughs> the hit, most prevalent, hit, hit the jackpot. Hit the jackpot. The most prevalent large, uh, large animal on the planet is, are humans. Right. And it made the, successfully made the jump. Hooray. Big day for them. Yeah, the not, not so much for us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Regina, I really want to thank you for taking time with us today. I really appreciate it. Listeners, you can learn more about Regina and her work at www.ems-solutionsinc.com. We'll be back with you in not too long a time with our next edition of Leader ReadyCast. Until then, please be ready to lead and stay healthy. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to leave.